these corals are often growing on things like trash, you know, anything from you know, highway barriers or shopping carts or bicycle frames, um, Greco-Roman statues. who is like half of our advisory committee and, and it's an honor and sort of our aquatics expert among other things um and we're going to talk about well an overlap between art and urban wildlife or urban wildlife topics that have an art side project um an aspect of art to it a connection with art yes all of those are, are yes they're still mostly about the wildlife. wildlife in the study yeah. of yes yes but there's a component of art there is nerdy art yeah. this is very in both cases this is exceedingly nerdy art <laughs> yes <laughs> this is like just our style we're diving deep into the intellectual urban wild or wildlife art realms um so uh it's too early so far to have comments to read yet um, I will make a few, have, say a few reminders. You can always get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at herbwildlifecast, and you can find us on Facebook. And I'm going to put out the call like I keep doing, that wherever you are in an urban setting in a city, feel free to, to deputize yourself as a correspondent and tape something that you see that you think is cool. Or you can call us and leave a voicemail message at 267 603-3219. Again, this is the United States um, phone number, but 267-603-3219. Um, and let us know what you're looking at. It can be 30 seconds. It can be five minutes. Um, Would this be... It's the internet, so... Would this be yeah. wildlife fling? Um, so... wildlife fling? <laughs> Dude, should I dance? Make a video of me dancing in a big sweater. So, we're going to start off. Um, Tony, how'd you hear about the Carl guy? Yo, straight up Vice. I may have been on the can reading my roommate's Vice. And and straight up was like, whoa, this is awesome. Yeah, when I went to their website, I was like, this is obviously made for Tony. <laughs> <laughs> it's like straight up, like, just a really cool music, science, art yes. project. Yeah, it's crazy. It was like, of all things, Vice Magazine, but, you know, and I have a thing for Carl, so. Who I don't doesn't? trust anyone who doesn't have a thing for Carl. Well, speaking of people with a thing for Carl, we're lucky because Hannah Waters um, just happens to be a, an ocean science reporter. Yeah, well, I'm now doing all kinds of reporting on science and environment, but I worked for more than three years at the Smithsonian writing exclusively about ocean stuff. Um, so yeah, I know a lot about the ocean. <laughs> so, um, so what's up with Carl's? Why is it interesting that a... Um, the guy would be tripping over like uh, staghorn and elkhorn corals on seawalls in Miami. Well, first of all, staghorn and elkhorn horn corals are endangered species, and they've been in, on the endangered list for a very long time. There aren't very many ocean species on the endangered species list, period. And I think there's something there's more than 20 corals on the list, but 
like 19 of those or something were added last year. These guys are like the veterans. They've been in danger for some time. But what's really interesting about them being found in Miami is that corals are notoriously sensitive. Um, If there's pollution in the water, they die. (laughs) Like (laughs) if they, so like there's, if they get overgrown with algae at all, they die because they're photosynthetic. So if they don't have access to sunlight, they just die. And Miami is this big harbor, presumably full of, dirt and full of detritus in the water that's blocking sunlight, but somehow these corals are able to survive there, and these endangered corals at that. So, way cool. That's, <laughs> it's, that's awesome that you said, said that, because he totally explains how that's possible, and he also explains the conundrum of the fact that uh, what he's finding is the hybrid of, of staghorn mm-hmm. and alcorn coral, and, and they're not protect, the hybrid isn't apparently protected. Mm-hmm. So well, it's not reproductive. I thought, right? Isn't it sterile? Well, that's the question. It's it's it's, it's unclear whether it might be um, might be reproductive or. Well, the coral has two modes. They have they right. oh, spawning yeah. and they also break off. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it's certainly asexually reproductive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I trimmed out one part where just to mention that there apparently there's been some controversy about dredging the the, the canal that these corals are found mm-hmm. along in Miami. Um, he was noting that. Uh, that the way they grow on a relatively vertical surface seems to protect them from silt settling out. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. and the, that the current and the, the angle seems to flush them pretty well. Um, and so... Um, and the very thing they're dredging provides the input of, of fresh seawater. Right. So, so the act of dredging actively kind of provides movement? Not the uh, dredging, but the... The, 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 the canal. The, the channel. Oh, yeah. yeah, he explains oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. shipping so, channel. All right, cool. So let's now get into that. So my name is Colin Ford. I am a marine biologist in Miami, and I'm the co-founder of an art science sort of hybrid endeavor called Coral Morphologic. I didn't really start exploring the urban waterways of Miami for corals until about 2009. And so I'd I'd already been in Miami for for nine years, really, before I, I... decided to uh, start exploring kind of within the urban boundaries of Miami because, of course, you know, like any uh, logical person, you think, you know, if you want to go out and find uh, coral reefs and corals and, and a healthy marine ecosystem, you think, you know, you, you, you want to try to get as far away from the city as possible. Um, but as I would discover, it really wasn't the case. And so um, starting in about 2009, I, I started doing a lot more documentation and exploration of these man-made urban waterways here inside uh, Miami-Dade County that uh, actually have a surprisingly diverse ecosystem. In order to, to really understand how and why there are these quote-unquote urban corals here in Miami, you really kind of have to kind of turn back time and realize just how much of the ecosystem of South Florida has been altered, you know, so radically over the last hundred years. One of the, the sort of the, the biggest things that has happened to allow people to live successfully in, in South Florida, of course, is the fact that the Everglades has by and large been completely managed and, and drained. The Army Corps of Engineers has spent the last hundred years um 
you know, dredging and creating canals and completely altering the water flow of the Everglades. So here in Miami, we have the Miami River, which is not sort of a traditional river in the in a northerner's idea of what a river is, although um, historically there, there was even some rapids, um, very small rapids in the, in the Miami River, whereas today the Miami River, for the most part, is, is like a, a really big shipping canal. Um, but if you went back in time a couple hundred years, a lot of the freshwater in the Everglades was draining out through the mouth of the Miami River into Biscayne Bay. So, you know, there's there's sort of two sides of, of Miami that people think they think oftentimes they think Miami, they're really thinking about Miami Beach. And now Miami Beach is um is a barrier island just to the east of Biscayne Bay. So so between Miami and Miami Beach you have we have Biscayne Bay, which a couple hundred years ago um, and really, I mean, even a hundred years ago, was largely a brackish, mostly freshwater brackish estuary. Um, but then, with the draining of the Everglades, this has now shifted the balance towards the salinity being much higher, like the ocean. So that's sort of one of the. the there's, I think, there are three critical elements to how these urban corals ended up um, being able to live inside Biscayne Bay. So the first is the fact that the Everglades have been drained and we don't have all this fresh water um, running into Biscayne Bay. The second is when they were building the city, of course, you needed to have a port. And so when Port Miami was, was built, uh, they dredged this uh, shipping canal called Government Cut. Um, and they, they dredged from basically the American Airlines arena all the way out through Biscayne Bay, out through Miami Beach, and then the channel actually extends about three miles further out into deeper water because the reefs are, are relatively shallow. But an inadvertent side effect of creating the shipping channel is that it basically acts like a tidal sluiceway. So every high tide, it funnels in all of this salt water from miles offshore near where the Gulf Stream is. Um, and it, so it brings in this pretty clean, full-strength seawater right into the heart of the city. Of course, it also carries with it uh, the coral larvae from, from the Gulf Stream and offshore. So then the third element that you need to have these corals is you need to have the substrate for the corals to actually adhere to and, and start growing because for the most part, Biscayne Bay has always been kind of a soft sediment, um, mangrove estuaries. Over the past 50 or 100 years, there's been all kinds of development and creation of, of land. And in order to, to create this land, you had to put in these seawalls um, to, to hold hold all this land in place. And so these, these seawalls were created out of concrete and rock, which suddenly provided these corals with an opportunity to, to settle out and, um, and to grow. I guess to sort of now get back to where I sort of these corals first caught my attention was in 2009, um, and I was snorkeling along the rocks of Government Cut on Fisher Island. So Government Cut crosses through Miami Beach to the north. So if you go to Miami Beach and you go to South Point Park, that is the Government Cut waterway, um, and there's there's a long jetty that's there. It's comprised mostly of granite boulders. I was snorkeling along them, and lo and behold, I came across a type of staghorn coral that I had never seen before in all of my years of 
snorkeling and diving in South Florida. And it occurred to me that it, it looked like it was a hybrid between a staghorn and an elkhorn coral, which are two of the most important reef building corals that we have in South Florida. And they're on the endangered species list as threatened. But believe it or not, there is a hybrid between these two species, the elkhorn and the staghorn. You know, there's perhaps uh, somewhere between 10 and 20 colonies in the entire state of Florida that are that are known. And this one is growing along the edge of an, you know, a shipping channel. It made me realize, wow, for, for this coral that is so rare that I've never seen it anywhere else in the Florida Keys, nowhere in Biscayne National Park, um, and nowhere in Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, um, you know, for it to be living on a man-made substrate um, next to a major shipping lane, it dawned on me that, you know, I should really be looking further inside the city to see what other corals might be might be living there. And so that's sort of what kick-started my interest in, you know, the urban corals as a whole. So subsequently, um, I continued to, to start exploring deeper into the city, and, and, I, and I found that there was, I've counted at least two dozen different species of stony corals living inside Miami-Dade County. You know, I, I consider the scenario of these urban corals to be sort of like a a bit of a silver lining in the, in the entire story of the upheaval of South Florida's ecosystems, because let's face it, they are absolutely beleaguered compared to, you know, what they were before we started building all of this human development here. From the Everglades to the Florida Keys, you just don't see these staghorn and elkhorn corals anymore on the reef. But here in, in Miami, it's like we've created a niche for these corals to become pioneers, and they have taken the opportunity that we have provided them through billions of dollars worth of infrastructure changes and you know the creation of land where there previously was no land and and these corals have taken the opportunity where previously you would not expect wild animals to be living but you know I've found I believe that there are approximately around 45 species of stony corals in Florida in general and I've found about 25 of those species inside the city limits so but what's interesting, of course, is that, you know, when you go out offshore um, to the natural reefs, the reefs you know, are not particularly that healthy, whereas a lot of the corals living inside the city really do seem like they're capable of, of surviving, um, you know, this, this sort of much more fluctuating and, and potentially subpar, suboptimal water chemistry and, and living conditions. So... Now, one of the things that I've, I find so interesting when I'm out exploring is to see how these corals are often growing on things like trash, you know, anything from, you know, highway barriers that have been somehow managed to find their way into the, into the water or shopping carts or bicycle frames, um, Greco-Roman statues, you know, that someone with a mansion has managed to push off into the, into the water. You know, and the corals, the corals utilize the substrate and and take it as their own, and it sort of creates a a miniature reef environment that then attracts all of the tropical fish and lobsters and and pretty much most of what you can find out further offshore in Biscayne National Park.
the causeway that connects downtown Miami to Miami Beach is called the MacArthur Causeway. So it's a few miles long, and so it's just a it's just a, a you know a strip of of land, and you have water on either side, and you've got these big boulders acting as riprap on on the edge of the highway, and they go right down to the water. If you were to pull over to the side and get out of your car and, and walk down to the water's edge and stand on these boulders, you'd see that there's just a tremendous amount of trash that has been washed into the boulders and the water is, is greenish. Um, you know, it, it's really, it's not very appetizing to want to, to want to get in and, and go snorkeling. So I think that one of the major reasons why no one was paying any attention is because you simply just don't want to get in the water. If we're, if we're trying to understand how corals are going to end up being more resilient and adaptable, then, you know, what we have here in Miami is basically an inadvertent coral laboratory. And, and these corals are, are here ready and waiting for research um, into understanding, you know, are they more adaptable? Are they more resilient? Another thing that, that's really, I think, important and interesting about these urban coral habitats is that we, in a lot of cases, we know how long the substrate has been there. So, for instance, along this causeway between Miami and Miami Beach, the boulders that are there were put there by Department of Transportation in the early 90s. Um, you know, they came in and they stripped out um, the older, smaller rocks, which, um, speaking to uh, another marine biologist friend of mine who grew up um, in Miami before they removed those rocks, it was a totally different community of, of, of corals that, that lived there. There's a lot of soft corals. You know, now we've got uh, pretty mature, full-size brain corals living on these boulders instead. So, you know, we have a timeline which provides a lot more information than if you're out on the natural reef, you know, if you see a three-inch coral, you know, that coral might be a few years old or, you know, it could be the last remaining bit of a coral that's you know, 200 years old and you really have no idea, you know, um, how old that, that coral is, whereas, you know, here inside the city, you have a baseline um, in which you can find out, you know, how long has the seawall been there. Speaking worldwide, you know, we're, we're looking at a big decline in coral cover decline in coral reef health, um, you know, as we've seen for the last couple of decades, and it's only going to get worse. However, I, I don't think that in, I don't think that that necessarily means that all corals are, are, are screwed or even all species of corals are screwed because I, I think that within, within an individual species, there's going to be resilient strains and, re, and resilient survivors that then, you know, become the ones that are passing on those um, you know, those hardy traits to their offspring, or at least you know that, that's what that's what I that's what I hope. Um, and of course, you know these corals in, in Miami, if they if they are if they are reproducing, then we can hope that they are you know in effect feeding um, other hardy strains of corals, both within Biscayne Bay, but also you know the larvae will get sucked back out on the low tide out to the uh, to the natural reefs and, and can, um, in theory, you know, seed um, natural reefs with sort of the more resilient genes of these corals that were that are living inside the city. Yeah, it's it's really, 
you know, I think a, a very interesting subject that deserves more examination from the coral biology community for sure. And are you hooked up with a university, or are you completely doing this funding on your own? Coral morphologic is, is entirely independent. Coral morphologic derives its name from this order of animals called coralomorphs. They look like they, they're somewhere between a sea anemone and a scammy coral. So coral morphologic was founded basically as an independent platform in which um, I would be able to do research and dive here in South Florida to continue, you know, sort of studying these crowlmorphs on my own. You know, morphs are very popular amongst aquarists because they tend to be very hardy, um, they're very colorful. So initially, we were we funded ourselves entirely through the aquaculture of these crowlmorphs, and, and that provided us with a platform in which to sort of pursue the secondary goal, which is to uh, produce art, photography, make films um, with these organisms that we were studying and aquaculturing. So really, we kind of took what I'm talking about, we, I'm talking about uh, my partner, uh, Jared McKay. I'm the, I'm the marine biologist, and, and he tends to be more of the musician and the artist um, side of things because we, we produce our own films, we make our own soundtracks, we you know, we do everything ourselves. Over the last couple of years we've we've been able to make the switch towards being able to sustain ourselves through um through art projects. We we just did a video projection installation, um several different pieces at uh, one hotel South Beach, which is sort of like flagship luxury green hotel for, for Miami Beach just opened up last year. It's a really beautiful place. Um, we did a, we did an installation at Design Miami um, during Miami Art Week last year called Coral Therapy. It was a virtual reality um, installation where you're sort of inside sort of a coral, a coral eye perspective. At Port Miami, we wrapped, we vinyl wrapped the parking booths so when you park your car, if you're going to go on a cruise, um, you, you know, when you pay your parking, um, the ticket booths, we, we uh, collaborated with an artist, Bhakti Baxter, um, to, to wrap these booths. And, and they're wrapped with these soft coral, it's called xeranthids, that are actually native to the port itself. So um, if you or any of your listeners ever... Go on a cruise that leaves out of Miami. I believe that they that they will be up for the next eight years. You know, we have we have installations at Miami International Airport. So if you fly American Airlines, you can check out the photographs of of um, sea anemones and crown morphs and zoanthids that are all native to, to South Florida near Gate D31. I guess you'd say our goal is to make corals the neon icons for 21st century Miami. Um, you know, because when you think about, you know, I think people generally tend to think of Miami as a very colorful, tropical, um, you know, um, neon nightlife kind of city. And you stop and think about the fact that really, you know, the original neon life forms were these corals, you know, and they were here, of course, you know, thousands of years before, um, you know, any man decided to build a nightclub. 
and it's also, of course, you know, it is part of the, the foundation of the bedrock of our city. So, you know, Coral Gables, um, you know, where the University of Miami is, is called Coral Gables because of the limestone that they use to make building facades. So we have this really great fossilized coral limestone. It was traditionally quarried down in the Keys, and it's got, you know, brain corals, and it's got all this beautiful coral in it. So it is the past of the city. You know, it is potentially the future of the city with sea level rise and what I've noticed in how we have corals sort of marching inwards to the city as the salinity um, has allowed them to. You know, if if the city is going to end up a new Atlantis, if you will, then based on the observations that I've seen, the corals are going to take advantage of this artificial reef that we have that we have built for them, just as they have taken advantage of this other man-made infrastructure that we have built for them. So, you know, a lot of our work sort of revolves around um, getting people to think about the geologic past and the future and the present and, you know, to, to really make them think about their sense of place and, and really what is so unique about Miami and its sense of place, I think, you know, is this tropical marine ecosystem that, that um, you know, lives in this subtropical city. To find out more about Coral Morphologic at www.coralmorphologic.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash coralmorphologic on Twitter. Check out Coral City on Vimeo or YouTube and follow us into the future. talking about uh, how, aside from perhaps accidental selection in Miami for hardy coral strains, let's say, this is something people are doing intentionally. Yeah, um, some intentionally and some, but it's all inspired by this kind of discovery of hardy corals because I mean, corals are in major trouble. It's really pressing to talk about, but the world's top coral reef biologists have repeatedly told me there won't be corals in 50 years, which is terrifying. And really briefly, why not? Basically, they're, they're so sensitive. And so every ocean threat, every kind of like human threat you can imagine in the ocean is hurting corals, and especially because they're coastal. So they're right around along human settlements. The biggest problem with overfishing because they actually, it removes the herbivorous fish, which eat algae, especially parrotfish that eat algae off okay. of the corals. And so without those fish around, algae grows on top of the corals, they can't access sunlight, and they okay. just die. So that's the biggest problem. But so there's pollution, that kills corals. Climate change, that kills corals. Ocean acidification, that kills corals. And so all of these things combined mean that corals have a really hard time. Cool. Um, and But there's pockets around the world, pockets where there's coral reefs surviving in hotter water, or coral reefs that are surviving in more acidic water, which are the conditions that people expect will, you know, be around for the foreseeable future. And so some scientists are select, like going, like, like this Miami group, um, going and trying to find these extra hardy corals and bring them back into the lab, study them, do genetic studies to figure out what, are, what genes are helping them survive better. And the idea is that then they could actually do genetic engineering or mate those corals, those hardy corals. Um, to kind of create hardier corals that can survive those conditions. Okay. I read a paper about actually suggesting introducing like South Pacific corals into the Caribbean because the Caribbean corals can't handle the higher ocean temperatures as well as some 
I mean, this is, think about it. There's so much more Carl than Brunswick, South Pacific, because it's so much more vast. So, and I yeah. Like, and they're just like, it, like, yeah, it sounds controversial, but it's better than losing. That's well, no, it's, it's, I don't know if sure we'll keep in here, but the, the whole, like, this, what is the term, the ecological equivalence or something like that? It's mm-hmm. like, you hear about this with, with rewilding discussions for North America. Like, if you have an extinct, an extinct mm-hmm. species, um, why not introduce, is it wrong necessarily to introduce something that fills the same niche somewhere else? You know, even for people who depend on coral reefs for fish for nurseries, you know, it could be a human rights issue. Sure, and mm-hmm. it's like, and if, if none of the local ones are working, you still mm-hmm. want the structure. Yeah. Um, well, the Caribbean, like corals in the Caribbean, are wor- like the Caribbean corals are some of the worst in the world because they've endured, especially tourism, just so much human impact for so long. Uh, I was um, reading something about like sunscreen impact. Yeah, there's there's the research on that is iffy, but there is some suggestion. But the okay. thing is. The threat, like what sunscreen, sunscreen in the water compared to global warming or yeah. overfishing or pollution, or there's just no comparison. Yeah. Um, my boss is at the Smithsonian. I worked with Nancy Nolan and Jeremy Jackson, who are like some of the world's top coral reef biologists. And they started, they're actually mar- a married couple that met while studying Caribbean corals in the 70s. And they were they sharing the same thing. <laughs> there are some really cheesy. There's like one video online that like cheeses up, and she, my boss hated it. She's like, turn it off. Um, <laughs> they met studying Caribbean corals, and they say that they feel like they spent their entire <laughs> careers. What they they say it writing ever more refined obituaries of the ocean and coral reefs. Aww. Like it's like they're studying corals and trying to understand them because they love them, but all they've done really is watch their decline and try to understand their decline in as fine detail as possible Ugh. but there's nothing they can do about it and jeremy last year conducted finished a review of 40 years of all the cor- the data uh, 40 years of data across all caribbean coral reefs he combined it and analyzed it and found that even if like global warming stopped today overfishing and pollution were such huge problems in the caribbean that coral reefs would be gone anyway they're just all screwed yeah, so basically it was, he was like, we have to do, the, the, it sounds really depressing, but the bottom line, he was like, the thing is overfishing and pollution are things we can do something about. More immediately, yeah. Yeah, like you can do something about those, so let's, let's do them. Our synanthropic organism of the episode um, is the, what do you call them, European starling or yeah. common starling? European starling. European starling. European starling. Um, say again? The banding code, E-U-S-T. Okay. So you're like, put it in Yes. Or use. I don't know. I'm just saying, like, I'm always, I'm always putting in when I'm recording starlings of, you know, an e-bird or whatever, or my notes is E-U-S-T. There you go. I feel like everybody knows the story, but we're going to tell anyways. Um, they have, like, an interesting history for how they ended up in the United States. You know, European starlings in the United States, not native. But it came from a, a Shakespeare enthusiast in the late 1800s, and... This guy that was trying to introduce all the bird species out of uh, Shakespeare. And so starlings are mentioned in Henry the Fourth, Part One, um, where they're mentioned for being taught to, I guess they're, they're good mimics. I heard on Sunday, I heard a starling at a Wawa. Uh, <laughs> Wawa! Yeah. <laughs> it, it did, uh, um, it did uh, Eastern Meadowlark. Well, there you go. Yeah, and see the wax wing. So, yeah. <clears throat> it was it was 
the Starlings were supposed to, in the in the play. There's one character um, who wants to drive another character nuts by having a Starling repeat the name of one of his rivals, and so just that mention was enough for these dudes in New York to release some Starlings into Central Park. So the story goes, and from there they spread all over the continent. And so people think of them as um, a pain in the ass just to have around because they can form these big groups, big giant flocks called murmurations, and poop all over everything. They compete uh, with um, native birds and bluebirds mm-hmm. nesting cavities. Yeah. And they sound like, I always thought they sounded like a rusty swing or something. Yeah. It's like this really like mechanical grinding call that... It's an acquired taste. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're they're actually pretty beautiful birds, mm-hmm. especially in I breeding agree. plumage. Yeah. I mean, they're very iridescent. I think they're lovely, yeah. If you're not sure what we're talking about, and you live in the United States, they're the ones that look like fighter jets, um, and have take big walking steps instead of hopping They'll around. Build and they're <laughs> glossy black. With they're the, black. With sil- yeah. Silvery spots all over them. Yeah. yeah. Iridescent, colorful neck with. Oh, hand starling. Good point. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. Um, huh. So it turns out. Where they're native, people like them. Um, and so if you're listening in England or in Europe or in much of Asia, you're thinking, what do you got against starlings? Um, in fact, I've, I've heard they're a little bit in decline in, in their native range. Do you know anything about this? I've heard that as well, yeah. Okay. So I'm not We've sure. We've got a lot of them over here if you want them. You want them, we got them. Where they're considered an agricultural pest and uh, a pain in the neck in urban settings. I was talking to a researcher in Belfast about uh, hares, you know, like 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 rabbit-like lagomorphs, like hares, uh, living at the Belfast airport. And I was asking, hey, what's another phenomenon in Belfast that you might want to mention? And he he thought he mentioned uh, this a bridge where there's a huge murmuration of starlings. So we'll listen to him say talk about that. Uh, I'm Dr. Neil Reed, and I'm lecturing in conservation biology at Queen's University Belfast. So we have a huge flock of um, uh, starling birds, which are maybe a couple of, uh, maybe a million, let's say. There's a, lo- a lot of birds anyway, and they come in right into our city centre at night at sundown, and they um, they flock and they create these wonderful flocks above the city, which then spiral down and disappear onto one of our major bridges called the Albert Bridge. Um, so that often attracts people's attention. Well, interestingly, um, both um, house sparrows and starlings are not doing at all well in their native range. So here they're native. and We have had a 25% reduction in the abundance of starlings and an even greater um, reduction in uh, sparrows over the last 25 years throughout um, the United Kingdom. Um, yet in other places where they are invasive, they seem to be doing rather well. And it's not exactly known what the causes of those declines are. It's suspected it's to do with changes in the climate, um, meaning that there's a mismatch between the availability of their food and when they breed. But certainly in in Northern Ireland, that's the exception within the whole of the British Isles, our starling population seems to be relatively stable whilst the rest are declining. Certainly people find them fascinating to watch and see. It's a beautiful spectacle, but you don't want to be walking across the bridge when they're directly overhead. Synanthropic organism. But the other thing is, I was, I was tracking down um, other stuff about exotic introduced birds. In particular, we're going to do some stuff later in the season about um, introduced 
parakeets in much of Europe, actually from basically from London all the way to Tokyo. You've got introduced populations. I'm always saying this wrong. Rose-ringed parakeets, rose-ringed parakeets. And so I was like just sitting there googling like cities in their home range to try to find someone we could talk to mm-hmm. about them in native where they're native. And incidentally, I sort of found this guy in the capital city of Bangladesh called Dhaka. It turns out he was doing a, a conservation project with with a different species of parrot, Alexandrine parakeet, um, which is more endangered and the congener. The conjured, right. Yeah, it's very closely related. And putting up, like, nest boxes around DACA for the Nebridan. And then I was looking at his, his, his CV, and he also wrote a whole book about starlings and their place in the poetry of one of Bangladesh's major poets, Jibanananda Dash. And uh, there, and, and he, he, it, it seems like in, in Bengali, in Bangladesh, um, they... Uh, since starlings are closely related to minas and part of the same group of birds. Mm-hmm. Actually, Granted, the minas that I was looking at some YouTube videos before I came over here to record yeah. this episode. And while some of the minas look like just normal starlings, some of yeah. them do look a little more tropical. They got, you know, striking coloration. Oh, but there's the also like crazy them. starlings all over the world, species of starlings all over the world, like Brahmin starlings and, and uh, I think rosy starlings or Bali. Oh, that's a mina. Are they but, colorful? Yeah, a lot of them are really colorful. Oh, figures about stuff like this. Just kidding, how do you say Yeah. <laughs> all birds. And there's, a, I mean, there's, there's minas, too, that are, that are, like, general minas and common minas that are, like, in, I don't know if you say invasive, but they're mm-hmm. introduced in cities throughout the world. Florida. Yeah, well, I, I, well we, we, one of the episodes, we went there. Fair I point. went there and saw common minas there, but they're in uh, Melbourne, Melbourne and Sydney and stuff, too. There you go. So, it isn't just the starlings. Uh, my full name is M.D. Shorif Hussain Shorov. I am doing job with Center for Environmental and Geographic Information Service. Here I am role-playing as an ecologist and doing almost the biodiversity-related research and study. Okay. And also I am writing to the newspaper basically the leading newspaper of Bangladesh, Daily Star and Puthamalo, regarding the wildlife and nature conservation. And as well as I am doing photography, basically the nature photography. And I'm doing some conservation-related work, doing my own. Um, I, was, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about the starlings of Dhaka City. Um, what, what species do you have there? Uh, a total of 13 species of starling in Bangladesh. And Dhaka city, we have the common starling, the European starling, and common starling is the same. Last year, we have two records of common starling. Okay. It's migratory. And the jungle mina, and the chestnut-tailed starling. And last year, uh, we record a flock of purple-backed starling in Dhaka city. They came for a limited time. Basically, we called them passage migrant. They stayed around two months in a central of Dhaka city, like a, like a well-visited area. We called it botanical garden. Every city of Bangladesh, uh, the starling is common. And the people are very much fond with the starling. They don't hunt them and don't irritate them. When I was looking at your CV, I noticed that you wrote a whole book about um, a poet who might not be well known here, but is very important in um, in South Asia. 
So can you tell us a little bit about that project and your book? Yeah, it's my uh, work about the Stalling because the poet Jivanananda Dash, he is a very much well known about his natural citation in his poetry, like mm -hmm. about birds, trees, and Stalling came in his work prominently. We called the poet of nature, Jivanananda Dash. In this dusk air, only beetles and dragonflies fly. Straws drop silently from a shalik's beak on the way. Ah, softly it picks them back up from where they lay. The dusk's red vein sets homeward mild of eye. A dove croons, the star finds peace in the silent sky. The green-red pui creeper lies astray, submerged in mist and sun at the end of the puish day as this icy, cool, soft month of solace goes by. See, red fruit fills its breast, peace is in its eye. In the dusk air, where do the beetles and dragonflies fly? Straws drop silently from a shawleek's beak on the way. Softly, it picks them back up from where they lay. The dusk's red vein sets homeward mild of eye. But I shall never be close to you under the boundless sky. So the poem um, that we all took turns reading just now is from uh, Bengal the Beautiful, written in 1934, originally called um, Rupashi Bangla. And this is the translation by Joe Winter from Anvil Press. And we'll post a link to this on our website. I always love to hear descriptions of nature in art and poetry, especially from other cultures and other times. Yeah. It's a really easy way for me to at least feel like I have some, some connection to <laughs> humans gone past, that we were looking for the same things or maybe seeing some of the same things. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like you know, a guy in 1930s in Bengal, it wasn't Bangladesh yet. <laughs> Um, was like watching a starling, you know, and sort of thinking about his life and thinking about someone he wasn't with. That was like I read Latin and like I was obsessed with mythology in college and that, or in, when I was a kid and I studied it all through college and I realized now it was because it's all nature. It's like all descriptions of nature embedded in mythology and poetry from two thousand years ago. And again, to focus on what Shorov's book was about. Um, is he sort of basically went around Bangladesh finding different, like the different species of starling or starling mina, you know, mm -hmm. and sort of connecting it back into the poetry of Dash. Of course, the book is in Bengali, so we might not be able to read it ourselves, but the project sure appealed to me. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like, so we have, you know, these, these two pieces about like how people take um, the wildlife they see around them and uh, and sort of take artistic inspiration from it, even if it's an urban wildlife phenomenon. So, Anna, how should people who want to read more of your stuff find you? Yeah, you can find me on the internet. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Hannah J. Waters, or my website is hannahjwaters.com. Chat with me. Cool. For us, you can find us at Herb, on Twitter at Herb Wildlife Cast. You can write us 
by email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook just by looking for Urban Wildlife Cast. Um, and, you know, wherever you are, um, you can be a course. You can deputize yourself as a correspondent. Leave us an audio postcard. You can email it to us. You can tell us about it if it's too big to email. <laughs> um, record it on your smartphone or call us at 267-603-3219. Again, 267-603-3219. And leave us a voicemail message um, with what you're checking out. And that could be dolphins in your harbor. It could be um, uh, butterflies in your garden. It could be a house centipedes in your house. <laughs> okay. Um, I got lights in your lashes. <laughs> Please. Yes, we want to hear about Especially your. Especially the photo. Sounds like a plan to me. All right. Thank you very much. Cheers. Keep finding cool stuff in the city. <laughs> All right. Thanks. <laughs> Uh, I'm Matthias from Berlin, and I'm going to tell you the funny story about the, f the most urban fox that I ever encountered in my life recently, which was when I drove, uh, rode my bike from home from work. It was already dark, probably it must have been 7 or 8 in the evening, and it was bitterly cold. I think there was still snow around, and when I crossed the road, which is really the most busy, uh, one of the busiest roads in Berlin, called Leipziger Straße. I saw this fox crossing a red light, um, not paying respect to any German traffic rules, and heading from an, from an East German high-rise quarter, where I was also wondering what he's doing there, towards one of the most fancy squares in central Berlin, the Gendarmenmarkt, which um, has the Academy of Sciences and very pretty 18th century buildings like the German Dome, the Deutsche Dom and the French Dome and so on, and the concert hall actually stands right in the middle of it. And it was so strange seeing this fox being so determined to walk into this hyper-urban neighborhood, and I was doing really wondering what he was intending to do there, because there's no place to cover, there's certainly not many mice or rat, rats around. So maybe he was on his way to Lafayette, getting a French sausage, <laughs> maybe he was on the way to the concert hall, maybe he was a musical fox interested in Beethoven. Or maybe he was on his way to the Academy of Sciences because he was studying urban nature. Hannah was talking a little bit about... Um, what well, was Hannah and then to get to Philly and then... <laughs> she's, she's from she's from I'm Jersey. From Jersey and all my friends from Philly called me Hannah Woods. <laughs> <laughs>